The success of the Allied invasion of Western Europe was not the end of the road for the weary Allies. The Germans and their conscripted fighters would continue to push back even while fleeing. And the Allies, who never quite got past all their infighting on strategy, would continue to criticize one another in a sort of family feud with significantly higher cost. But there are fewer things that unite Westerners with disagreements than a common enemy. Adolf Hitler was still fighting back, though he was weakening on all sides. The last months of 1944 would be monumental for Eisenhower, who, after being named Supreme Allied Commander during the Allied invasion, would eventually be promoted to general. His capacity for working well with all the other allies, Churchill, Montgomery, and de Gaulle, even when they bickered, managed to continue to work with them with success. It was a skill, no doubt, that he learned from his years alongside the abusive MacArthur, of whom Eisenhower, we know, was no fan. He would always diplomatically reply that he had learned much from the man who was famous for his tantrums. The promotion came in the midst of one of the Nazis' most fervent Hail Mary moves. Eisenhower likely had little time to celebrate the good news of his promotion as four days prior to being named general, Hitler's Nazis came forward for one last stand in the Ardennes between the rows of trees. The German war machine tried to hold off the Allies, chasing them back home. On December 16, 1944, a surprise attack was launched, catching a group of weary Allies off guard. The Battle of the Bulge was set to begin. The Nazis were not ready to give up, not Yet. And General Eisenhower, alongside General Patton, had to counter overconfidence to beat the army of a paranoid dictator, dangerous with desperation. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Dwight Eisenhower, Episode 4. The Allied experience varied from town to town across France. Some were Hard-fought battles, others, well, the Allies just walked right in as though they had been expected guests running late for dinner. As of July 1944, Patton's Third Army rolled into Brittany relatively unchecked. And though the battles raged on, there was a sense of finality, lingering somewhere in the distance almost within grasp. In August, Eisenhower had a brief stop in the fields of an apple orchard with Kay Summersby by his side. He set up his headquarters there. He christened it Shellburst. And in her own writings, Kay recalled that it was the first peaceful night's sleep in weeks. There were no buzzing planes or explosions. A local farmer stopped by and brought them a cow for fresh milk. It became immediately obvious that most of Ike's staff had no idea how to milk a cow. The boy who grew up on a farm in Kansas was highly amused. Mess Sergeant Marty Snyder said that Eisenhower watched his men staring at the anatomy of the cow before finally giving up, kicking them out of the way, and milking the animal himself. The Allies, for all their disagreements, have begun to take over major seaports, and despite the Nazis continuing to push back, strides were being made. Eisenhower's eyes were fixed on Berlin, but the situation was precarious and whispers said that Hitler was becoming more and more unhinged. The rumors said that Hitler had become dependent on different types of narcotics and they had affected his mental health. According to the author of the novel Blitzed, Norman Oler, Hitler had been a man who had avoided drugs and, for the most part, had maintained a healthy lifestyle, but... As Hitler and Stalin fell out of each other's graces, the Fuhrer began falling ill from the stress. Oler said that his physician, Dr. Theodore Morell, eventually began dosing Hitler with opiates. 
As the account goes, Hitler was stunned by how much better he felt and thus began requesting and using opiates more and more. There were also rumors of legally produced methamphetamine that enabled Hitler to work long hours without sleep. It must be said that historians debate on how aware Hitler was of the concoctions he was being given, but there is no doubt that that sort of combination of those medications would severely alter the mental chemistry of anyone who took them. But it wasn't just the drugs that made the Fuhrer nervous. On July 20th, 1944, Hitler survived an attempted assassination by one of his own men. Operation Valkyrie, as it was called, was the culmination of planning by the German resistance and Nazi insiders. The tides were turning and most Germans knew this. And though there was a great political divide between the Germans involved in the plot, they all realized it would be for the greater good of Germany if Hitler were just out of the picture completely. In a series of planning, it was determined that Lieutenant Colonel Stauffenberg would be the man who would help carry out the main event. Stauffenberg was a German nationalist, but was not a Nazi party member. In a sense of either duty or nationalist pride, Stauffenberg decided it was his duty to be the man who killed Adolf Hitler. Stauffenberg, however, appeared to miss opportunity after opportunity when circumstance thwarted his multiple attempts. On July 1st, 1944, Stauffenberg was promoted to Chief of Staff to General Franck. This was a perfect position with nearly direct access to Hitler. But with every attempt to take out Hitler, inevitably something went wrong. Another man, General Helmuth Steiff, was said to kill Hitler on July 7th, but at that ultimate moment, he was unable to move. Stauffenberg decided he would have to do this one all by himself. Perhaps overextending themselves a bit, they decided not only to take out Hitler but his other Nazi henchmen, Heinrich Himmler and Hermann Göring. Attempts in mid-July also failed when not all parties were in the same place at the same time. And at one point, Stauffenberg had to hide the bomb at the last moment. Had the circumstances been less important or less serious, this story almost feels like a slapstick comedy. But it's on June 20th, 1944, that Hitler comes the closest to dying. In his book, Operation Valkyrie, The German General's Plot Against Hitler, Pierre Gallant describes the missteps. Stauffenberg was called to the bunker. The plan had been very contingent on the room being a sealed concrete prison with no windows. An explosion in such a room would be a suicide mission, but it would kill everyone in that room, and that happened to be the point. But due to high temperatures, the meeting was moved to a room with windows full of furniture and other objects that could catch shrapnel and potentially provide hiding spots from the blast. It would have been wise for Stauffenberg to call the operation off completely, but he thought that with two bombs in a suitcase, the outcome would likely be the same. Unfortunately, he only had time to arm one of the explosives. He placed the suitcase as close to Hitler as he could, excused himself from the room, and waited. What he didn't know was that another individual, hoping to sit close to the Fuhrer, scooted that suitcase away. When it exploded, a stenographer was killed. Twenty others were injured, including Hitler, who suffered only an injury to his eardrum. He had managed to hide behind a table. Stauffenberg was caught and eventually executed 
and the incident contributed to the already deteriorating mental health and paranoia of Adolf Hitler. He even went so far as to have the execution of Stauffenberg's brother filmed for his personal viewing pleasure. But those around Hitler questioned his judgment. Gunther von Kluge told Hitler that they planned to fall back, forming a line from the Seine to the Swiss border, but Hitler irrationally ordered a counterattack. That counterattack was ordered against the Third Army. And, by proxy, General George S. Patton. As you can imagine, this did not go very well for the Germans. As the Panzers went forward, the U.S. 30th Division held them off with the aid of Allied air bombardments. It sent the Germans running, and he ordered a retreat without the go-ahead from Hitler. Some 40,000 troops ran. Though fighting continued, Patton's 3rd Army, the French 2nd Division, and the Canadian 1st Army arrived on August 19th, surrounding 50,000 German soldiers. The Allies had taken Normandy, but at extremely high cost. Eisenhower, upon arrival, wrote that it was literally possible to walk for hundreds of yards at a time, stepping on nothing but decaying flesh. There was an extremely paranoid man in Berlin, and while there was surely nothing Eisenhower wanted more than to have Kay hit the gas and take him east, the Allies were stuck in a holding pattern. No Germany. Not yet. And for both the government and the military, most of you will not be surprised to learn that not much has changed. As Carlos Desta wrote in his book, the Allies needed logistics and communication to push forward, and those were two things that continually got lost amongst all the leaders. The Nazis had a far better command on getting messages back to Berlin, but with Ike, messages could take days to get to the Allied Expeditionary Headquarters. At best, it meant info was outdated. At worst, catastrophe could happen within the silence. At one point, an extremely urgent message sent to Montgomery took 36 hours. And the icing on top of the cake was that several of the paragraphs that Eisenhower had written were missing. As I've said before, the Allies may have been allied in name and ultimate goal, but how to get to said goal was often a set of squiggles more so than a straight line. And Eisenhower had his sights set on Germany. For the most part, it appears these plans were drafted with no knowledge of his colleagues, but he had hoped to encircle Germany like the Carthaginians in the way that they encircled the Romans. And while Eisenhower may have fancied himself Hannibal, they would have to go through the Ardennes. His plan showed Eisenhower marching Montgomery north with Lieutenant General Omar Bradley taking his 12th Army south of the Ardennes. He plotted, but other allies expressed concerns. The Germans would push back in the Ardennes. All the while, tensions were brewing between Montgomery and Ike as well as Bradley. The Americans were boisterous and not thinking clearly, so Montgomery appeared to think. And Eisenhower and his cohorts thought the Brits were being far too cautious. The Americans wanted speed. They wanted Berlin. But the war was not won and Germany was still fighting. But Eisenhower just wanted to head to Berlin and hit the heart of the German war machine. Both had valid points, but there was a battle looming in the air, and that's when Eisenhower assumed command of the ground war. The rest of the Allies were furious. The British public was angry. Even some of Eisenhower's friends and confidants were concerned, but Ike had been tired of the squabbling between everyone and basically decided to quash it by announcing himself as the decision-maker. 
Montgomery stopped talking to Eisenhower altogether, and Patton and Bradley were in desperate need of supplies, with Patton once lamenting to Bradley, you are to shoot the next person who brings us food instead of gasoline. The infighting between the Allies is the stuff of legend, and at one point when Montgomery began criticizing Eisenhower's strategy, Ike is said to have responded, Careful, Monty. I'm your boss now. Allies, in name only. By August 1944, the Allies and the French Resistance made their way into Paris. The liberation of the capital city caused cheers and celebration, but there was still bloodshed. But the Allied forces had lost precious time in their disagreements of attack. The stalling gave the Nazis time to regroup, and it also gave time for Ike to realize that a double-sided offensive was nearly impossible. They didn't have the resources for two offensive attempts, and Overlord, though it had been successful, hadn't crippled the Nazis the way they had hoped. Hope wasn't lost, it was just harder to find in the confusing mayhem that is real warfare. Hypotheticals seldom have the real confusion and unexpected turns that war does. Ike saw stalemate at every turn, and the Arden Forest proved to be as much of a beast now as it had been during the First World War. Germany regained some strength in its allies' paws, and this was a grave mistake for Ike. Two subsequent falls of Namur and Liège gave the Nazis the opportunity and opened the door to Belgium, and they walked right in. The toll was 750,000 casualties amongst the Allies, and the blame fell right at the feet of the supreme leader of the Allied forces. Between multiple historians, I find blame tossed from everyone to logistics heads, to Eisenhower, Patton, and even to Montgomery. Eventually, logistics chief Johnny Lee, who had difficulties maintaining supply lines to get food, fuel, and munitions to the crews, got the vast majority of the blame, but... Blame seldom matters when it comes time to try again. Eisenhower eventually reconsidered and opted to keep Lee. The Allies managed to open up more ports and supply lines flowed with more success and thus Eisenhower put his mind towards crossing the Rhine. But infighting once again halted the Sixth Army Group. Conditions were miserable. If men were not being killed by the remaining Axis troops, they were freezing to death. It was as though the Allies were marching once again into trench warfare, and that was not something anyone wanted to do again. World War I's trenches had been enough for everyone. Montgomery made his intentions very clear. He wanted Eisenhower out of the land battle. His reasoning was very simple. He does not know how to do it. And the Nazis watched in confusion. Why weren't the Allies moving? It was a mess. Eisenhower observed the mayhem at the Trianon Palace, once Marie Antoinette's refuge. At one point, his team offered to disturb the former queen's gardens to build an air raid shelter, but Ike refused, telling an aide, one could be killed just as comfortably, in a bed, as a cellar. And when Ike brought his driver and assistant Kate into the palace with him, those rumors immediately made their way back to Washington, and to Ike's wife, Mamie. Her stress levels were already elevated by the fact that John, her son, had been assigned to the 71st Infantry, and now she was having to watch, as Kay served as hostess at the Versailles-based headquarters. But as tongues wagged, Winston Churchill awarded Kay the Medal of the British Empire. Her services to Eisenhower and to the United Kingdom had been noticed. To what extent they were interpreted... It really did not matter to anyone at Eisenhower's side. That is, anyone except Mamie. 
But to what extent she believed the rumors about Kay, we just can't be sure. On December 15, 1944, Ike was given the rank of five-star general of the army. On December 16th, over 300,000 Nazis rolled out of the Ardennes. It's rumored that at one point Eisenhower turned to Patton and lamented, Every time I get promoted, I get attacked. To which Patton replied, Yes, and every time you get attacked, I bail you out. The Battle of the Bulge. Under the cover of snow, blood would be shed. Hitler had decided to blitz the Allies with panzers and push the Allies back to regain lost ground. Many American troops, exhausted and cold, were quickly annihilated. Knowing what to expect this time, Eisenhower knew hasty reinforcement would be his first step, and he sold his plans to de Gaulle and Montgomery, but presenting the attack not as a direct run into the mouth of hell, but rather a way to annihilate a weakening German line. The Nazis were also being spread thin. And this was a chance to eliminate a high number. Eisenhower told them that this was, quote, an opportunity for us, not a disaster. The American troops were ordered to fight with all they had left in them. Backup was coming. In a speech, Eisenhower said the following as a means of encouragement. The enemy is making his supreme effort to break out of the desperate plight into which you have forced him by your brilliant victories of the summer and fall. He is fighting savagely to take back all that you have won and is using every treacherous trick to deceive and kill you. He is gambling everything. But already in this battle, your gallantry has done much to foil his plans. In the face of your proven bravery and fortitude, he will completely fail. As soon as a break in the weather appeared, in came the 101st Airborne. Paratroopers surrounded the Germans on all sides. It was violent. It was bloody. And despite the pure suffering that the soldiers no doubt felt in those long, long days, they held off the Germans through the beginning of the year. And despite pleas from his highest-ranking officers, Hitler refused to allow them to withdraw. American losses were particularly high, nearly matching those of the Nazis. The difference was that the Nazi destruction weakened the Reich's forces even more. Eisenhower always shouldered blame for those initial mistakes in the Ardennes, and he had Patton and Montgomery to credit for that 11th hour save. And even though Montgomery did have some begrudging respect for Eisenhower, he did take the opportunity to remind all that the Brits in turn had saved the Americans from certain disaster. It wasn't incorrect. It did leave a sour taste in the Americans' mouths, but Monty was right. But the time was to focus now on Berlin. Ike was ordered not to be used as a political puppet for the Allies in negotiation with Joseph Stalin. The Soviets were about to take down Berlin once and for all, and it would be one of the bloodiest invasions in history. And in a tragic game of dominoes, it would lead the way for the Cold War that, in some ways, even today we're still fighting. Eisenhower dispatched Air Chief Marshal Sir Arthur Tedder to Moscow to meet with Stalin to coordinate talks of what a post-Hitler world would look like. And the Americans dangled the carrot of Berlin in the face of Joseph Stalin. The Americans and other allies, Tedder explained, just wanted to get rid of Hitler and the German army. Berlin was never mentioned as a trophy. It was just there for the taking. There was no treaty, and though Stalin wrote to Eisenhower, there were obvious nerves about trusting the man. 
By March of 1945, the Allies had crossed the Rhine. Montgomery's Second Army with U.S. reinforcements crossed through northern Germany. The Canadians drove through the Netherlands and Patton's Third Army made a breakneck pace through the south. They worked to capture bridges before they could be destroyed, as well as capturing prisoners as they went along. As Allied forces successfully crossed those rivers and towns, Hitler began replacing his staff at an alarming rate. By April 12th, the U.S. Ninth Army was 75 miles outside of Berlin. But it's also on April 12th that Eisenhower sees something that changes him forever. And this is one of those moments that made me realize the foresight that this man had. There had been rumors of the Nazis' final solution. But it's at Ordruf concentration camp, a satellite of the larger Buchenwald concentration camp, that Eisenhower has his eyes opened. The camp had been liberated the week prior to his arrival, and the prisoners there included people of various nationalities, French, Belgian, German, Hungarian, Czech, Italian, Russian. In addition to Jewish individuals, the camp housed prisoners who the Nazis judged as antisocial, homosexuals, anyone they considered an enemy of the state. In early April, with the oncoming advance of Allied forces, the SS evacuated almost all the prisoners in a death march. Many prisoners who were too weak or ill to partake were murdered. Orderf was the first camp liberated by American soldiers. What they found were corpses, the stench of death, ashes, as workers had ran out of time to destroy evidence. They found torture devices and bones. General Patton discovered a shed full of bodies, covered in lime. He refused to enter. As a means of punishment, Germans in nearby towns were forced to walk the camp to see, to see what transgressions had occurred. And then they were forced to bury the dead. It's later said that the mayor of Ordruf hanged himself after the tour. As he surveyed the gore, he stood stoically, but Eisenhower made a point to bring the media in to film the carnage out of the sheer fear that no one would believe the horrors of what had unfolded. He documented these sites, these bodies, so that when the Nazis were brought to justice, the world would see what Germany had done. But April 12th also brought more tragedy and swift change. That same day, across the world, Franklin Roosevelt was sitting for a portrait in Warm Springs, Georgia. He collapsed onto the floor. Roosevelt was dead. Later that day, Vice President Harry Truman would take the oath of office. Things began moving at a breakneck pace. On April 16, 1945, the Soviets ransacked Berlin. On April 30th, Adolf Hitler shot himself in his bunker. And to paraphrase a quote from Shawshank Redemption, I like to think the last thing that went through Adolf Hitler's mind, besides that bullet, was the fact that Joseph Stalin had beaten him. On May 7th, the Nazis surrendered. Victory in Europe. In the midst of carnage and death, there was one moment of joy captured on photo. A crew of men celebrating with Ike and in the background, the familiar face of Kay Summersby. As historian Jean Edward Smith points out, the War Department would airbrush Kay out of the official photo. As for Kay, she remains an oft-discussed and debated figure of Ike's life. She went from 
constant companion to a name that was never spoken around Washington. Many historians say she was solely Ike's driver and that she entertained him with her wit. The story of Telic the dog, frequently in pop culture, is portrayed as Kay purchasing the dog for Ike for his birthday. Namely because, as Ike once wrote in a memo, can you imagine the scandal if anyone finds out I bought my driver a dog? Historian Carlo Desta wrote a multi-part series of essays saying that modern values have been placed upon the pair, leading to the automatic judgment to lend their thousand days together as an affair. After all, Kay had been engaged when she first took this position as Ike's driver, and it was Ike who consoled her after her fiancé's death. Some years later, Harry S. Truman is alleged to have told an interviewer that Eisenhower once wrote to Marshall to ask for permission to divorce Mamie in order to marry Kay. Desta was quick to point out that Truman did not like Eisenhower and that particular anecdote had not been on record. Staff members saw nothing and there is no record of that telegraph being sent to Marshall or even a response. And the reporter in question was at one point accused of being senile. To what extent Kay and Ike's relationship went, it's impossible to know. We have two accounts from Kay, one a little more scandalous in her later years, recounting stolen kisses and hand-holding and two physical encounters, but she claimed they never consummated the relationship. Personal opinions just don't matter much in history. We know of many high-ranking officers with mistresses, and the relationship, whatever the nature of it was, was a badly kept secret. And who are we to judge anyone who looked for comfort in the middle of the hell of war? And just as she was erased from the photo of Ike celebrating, Kay just disappeared from Eisenhower's life. He did help her get American citizenship. His career would have been extremely harmed by a divorce scandal, and it's likely the rumors were far more salacious than the truth. A war correspondent named Bob Considine later asked Kay, Did you ever sleep with him? And he said she began to tear up. You're the first person who's ever had the courage to ask me that. Never. I loved as everybody in uniform or out of uniform loved him all over the world. And if he had asked me, beckoned a finger to me, I would have done anything he asked me to do. But he never asked me. Kay had expected to go to Washington with Ike, but she received a letter. Dear Kay, I am terribly distressed first because... It has become impossible longer to keep you as a member of my personal, official family. And secondly, because I cannot come back and give you a detailed account of the reasons. In this letter, I shall not attempt to express the depth of my appreciation for the unexcelled loyalty and faithfulness with which you have worked for the past three and a half years under my personal direction. I am sure you understand that I am personally much distressed that an association that has been so valuable to me has to be terminated in this particular fashion, but it is by reasons over which I have no control. Finally, I hope that you will drop me a note from time to time. I will always be interested to know how you are getting along. At the end of the note was a postscript in Ike's handwriting. Take care of yourself and retain your optimism. When Kay died in 1975, they found several little tokens and a note written to her from Ike that was likely scribbled during a meeting in which he found himself bored. How about lunch, tea, and dinner today? If yes, who else do you want, if any? At which time? How are you? 
Omar Bradley, in his own autobiography, testified to Kay's versions of events and said, Of course they were in love. He wryly added that Kay's influence over him was greater than was generally realized. Letters refuting any evidence to the contrary, Bradley noted, were sourced primarily from letters to Mamie from Dwight denying the relationship. To my mind, Dwight does protest too much. Ike briefly returned to Washington and was photographed shortly thereafter celebrating alongside Mamie. He received accolades from journalists, politicians, and of course, Truman. But Truman, despite his respect for Ike's work ethic, was always just a little wary of him. Ike's political views were kept quiet, leaving many to guess whether he was a Democrat or Republican. During a speech at West Point, Eisenhower added, I am a soldier, and I am positive that no one thinks of me as a politician. There was still work to be done, and as Ike left to go back to Europe, he left Mamie a note. It assured her that he, quote, exclusively loved only you, and that loyal friends and helpers are not involved in the wonderful feelings I have for you. The days and weeks that followed VE Day were a blur. New President Harry Truman, as well as the other heads of the Allied forces, met to discuss the future of a war-torn Germany. The conference was attended by Truman, Stalin, and Churchill's replacement, Clement Attlee. This was a shock to all. Winston, had lost the election. What followed was a tete-a-tete, not only with a reeling German government, but also Stalin. Stalin and Roosevelt had both spoken of high reparations paid by Germans for the damage they had wrought, but Truman sought to remind everyone that the inflation caused by these reparations of the Great War in World War I had been the root cause of what had happened this time around. Instead, they would work to demilitarize and divide Germany up between the victors, as well as put Nazi war criminals on trial for their deeds. Countries that had been occupied by the Reich would now be freed. And while excellent in theory, this would of course lead to arguments over new borders being defined in this brave new world. But something else was brewing, and Eisenhower learned what had Truman on edge. Prior to the conference, Truman had learned of the successful test of the Manhattan Project, the atomic bomb, the destroyer of worlds. After learning this, I claimed he became immensely depressed. The successful test in New Mexico showed the catastrophic damage the bomb could inflict. And it was Eisenhower who went to Truman to try to dissuade the president from dropping such a weapon. I told him of my grave misgivings, Eisenhower recalled. Eisenhower believed that Japan was already defeated and such a weapon could only lead to suffering for the future. Eisenhower said he was the only one at the Potsdam Conference who opposed the dropping of a weapon of mass destruction. The bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki remain controversial to this day and its ripple effect would be felt throughout the Cold War. The bombs were dropped on August 6th and August 9th, 1945. And by September 2nd, Japan surrendered. The war was over, but Russia saw that power, the power of that weaponry, and a new, colder war would start brewing. The Postum Conference would be the last time that these Allied leaders would meet to discuss the ending of the Second World War. They set to dividing Germany into four occupied zones. The Soviets took the east, and the city of Berlin was also divided into four zones. 
The conflict that these divisions caused would frankly fit into their own multi-part podcast, but needless to say, the ramifications are still felt even after the Berlin Wall fell in the 1980s. On August 11th, still stunned by Truman's call to bomb Japan, Eisenhower, accompanied by several staff members and his son John, jumped on a plane and headed to Moscow. Hindsight of the volatile relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union would have us believe that this wouldn't necessarily have been beneficial, but it was actually quite beneficial. Stalin welcomed Eisenhower warmly, almost like a father, Ike would later note. It seemed as though the future relationship between the two countries could be positive, though Stalin noted they could use financial help and other instructions on things like industry and agriculture. I see nothing in the future that would prevent Russia and the United States from being the closest possible friends, Ike stated. Hindsight is twenty twenty, but in that moment, the future looked so bright. But not everyone enjoyed the idea of working with the Soviets. In September of 1945, General Patton caused controversy with an explosive diatribe over his disagreement with the denazification of Bavaria, where he was serving. During his comments, Patton implied the setup would give Europe more communist, and in remarks, he began comparing American political parties to the Nazis. It didn't take long for Eisenhower to remove Patton from his position and send him to a desk job where he would be in charge of documenting the history of the war. But many people noticed that Patton's behavior was becoming more and more erratic. That man is going to drive me to drink, Ike wrote to Mamie. At his new assignment, Patton found some peace and quiet, which he alternated between enjoying and being bored. On a drive to a hunting trip, Patton lost control of his vehicle and was injured. Though he survived the initial crash, he was paralyzed from the neck down. After 12 days of hospital care, Patton made the comment, This is a hell of a way to die. He died in his sleep on December 21, 1945. Years later, Eisenhower would note that he and Patton, despite the controversy, got along famously. Even in moments of tense disagreement, the two worked impeccably well together. John Eisenhower once said his father just accepted Patton's outburst as part of the deal. But Eisenhower had known that Patton was becoming something of a loose cannon before he removed him. In 1946, a newsreel caught footage of Dwight Eisenhower at the grave of Patton in Luxembourg. It had been a volatile friendship, but the two understood each other. There were rumored whispers that the popular Eisenhower might run for president, and though Truman and Eisenhower were professional, there is no doubt that Truman carried some concerns about that. But surely not, right? Like, Eisenhower had no political aspirations. Everyone in Washington knew. He'd run around and he had been photographed with his driver and assistant, and that was a scandal, and no one seemed to know the man's political views. When the topic of a political career had been brought up previously by Truman, Eisenhower shook his head. Mr. President... I don't know who your opponent will be for the presidency, but it will not be I. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast that looks at the people in history who are God's favorites, or at least thought they were. There are a lot of sources for today's episode, so let's get through those. Gene Edward Smith, Eisenhower in War and Peace. Carlo Desta, Eisenhower, A Soldier's Life. Carlo Desta, again, the myth of Ike and Kay Summersby. Omar Bradley, A General's Life, The Manhattan Project, the U.S. Government Department of Energy's website, the National Park Service website, the Eisenhower Dispatch, 
Kay Summersby Morgan's book, Past Forgetting, Norman Oler's Blitzed, History.com, the United States Potsdam Conference site, part of the United States Defense Department website, the Holocaust Museum website, and Dwight Eisenhower's Foundation's website. Thank you so much to everyone who donates to our Patreon page. Your donations make it possible for me to buy and purchase these books to support these authors, as well as cover streaming costs. It ain't cheap running a podcast. You can come visit God's Favorites, a history podcast over on Facebook, or come over and hang out on TikTok with us. My handle is Melissa Fairlady. We have a blast. And of course, now we're getting into the series of Ike, the politician. Oh boy, there's going to be a lot on McCarthy. That's going to be fun. See you next time, friends.